You are now tuned in to the Worldwide Underground. I'm your host, Gabriel Teodros, and it's been a minute since the last episode. We had New Year's. We had birthdays over here. We went to Chicago for the People for Gaza event. And uh, joining Ijoma and myself in Chicago was none other than my guest on the podcast today, Nikita Oliver, a.k.a. K.O. Nikita. Incredibly talented poet, MC, vocalist, a boxer, an attorney, community organizer, visionary. They help lead one of my favorite organizations in the city, Creative Justice. And they had an historic run for Seattle mayor back in 2017. They almost won the whole thing. Came shy of the primaries by, what was it, less than 2,000 votes? Very excited every time I get to share space with Nikita Oliver. I wanted to have Nikita on the podcast this week in particular because on Monday, the organization that Nikita works with, Creative Justice, takes over the cafe at Washington Hall. There's a grand opening this Monday. That's Martin Luther King Jr. Day here in Seattle, Washington. And um, they have a very specific intention to honor my dear friend, Rawa Hapte, Hidmo, the Hidmo legacy. And uh, I wanted to talk about all of that. Nikita said, if there's one thing they hope you get from this podcast, is to know the value of our collective stories and our collective legacy. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. One time I want to thank everyone who supports the Worldwide Underground. If you want to sign on to the mailing list, the best way to support all the work that we're doing here on the Worldwide Underground, all you got to do is head to gabrielteodros.substack.com, put your name on the list, also put up on the podcast at any amount that feels good to you this is a completely independent venture it's powered completely by our listeners by our community and we thank you all so much with no further ado here's nikita oliver and myself in conversation for the worldwide underground peace i am here with my good friend nikita oliver nikita how are you doing What's good, Sam? I'm doing good, especially because I'm in space with you. It's always Yo. a pleasure to be with you. Likewise, likewise. Um, I think the number one question on everyone's mind when it comes to you is like, what are you doing these days? And where are you? Where as much in as, the as, world? as much as as much as you want to share. Where in the world is Nikita Oliver? Yeah. <laughs> like Carmen San Diego. Um, right just uh political and down for the people was carmen san diego down for the people i can't remember um, i don't think so i don't think so either carmen gives a little bit of cop vibes so right right hold that um you know <laughs> i am i am still working with creative justice uh it's really beautiful organization grassroots org uh in seattle washington uh, that was founded out of the Noni Youth Joe movement. We're entering our 10th year. I'm really honored to be the executive director here. Uh, we're this weekend on Martin Luther King Jr. Day opening a cafe um, with young people that are focused on centering uh, Black, Brown, Indigenous arts and cultural workers and training young people on their labor rights and coffee and what does it mean to build safe, spaces for community. So deeply invested here in this space. Um, I live between the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest. And mm -hmm. uh, it feels a lot like I move between these worlds that I understand are and are connected in me and through me, but just the organizing is so different, the context, the environment, which I think has been a really important reminder. I feel like in the Pacific Northwest, we can forget that there are places that 
not that the that I don't want to leave people thinking Seattle is super progressive or you know hella down for everything on the left, but the Midwest in terms of like the risk that organizers take, uh, the lack of broad support for progressive uh, political movement, uh, it, it's very palpable, um, mm-hmm. and so you know over the last year and a half, just been doing a lot of thinking about what would it look like if we had more organizers that have the the experience and the spirit of what I've been around in the Pacific Northwest in the Midwest. So that you had a, a growing body of black radicals uh, there. Now there are black radicals there doing really important key work, but mm-hmm. I think what I see is the risk is different. The state sanctioned violence is much more widely accepted um, mm-hmm. and it is swift. So uh, I'm kind of living between those two worlds and uh, excited to be close to family in both places, chosen family in one and blood family in the other, Uh, especially in these times of just like such great grief and also uprising. Yeah, yeah. For people that don't know about creative justice, like as an organization, can you can you talk about like, you know, what it what it's based on and and what the work is like day to day. Yeah, so in um 2000 was it 2012 there was a levy. So I'm going to go real far back in the history to come forward, but in 2012 yes. there was a levy called the Children and Family Justice Center levy that King County had folks vote on and they made it sound like they were going to be building this place for children and families to be supported and made whole. But in reality, they were building a children's jail and courts to prosecute kids and quote unquote family courts to separate families. And um, this really dope organizer, Dee Dee, and other young people called attention to how racist and classist uh, this project was. And um, even though the levy ultimately passed amongst voters over a period of about 10 years, organizers um, took the No New Youth Jail movement from this small group of people that the county called just like a bunch of radicals into a movement that some of the larger nonprofits and institutions have also bought into of acknowledging that incarcerating young people, and we would say generally as abolitionists incarcerating people, punishing people is not the best response to generating the safety and care and well-being that we deserve. And it ultimately does not get us to safer communities. And so uh, creative justice was directly birds out of the Nona Youth Jail movement. Uh, there were organizers at the county's arts agency who uh, saw there's this uh, program called 1% for Arts that anytime a capital project is built in our county, of the funds for it have to go towards arts. Usually this is public art that we may or may not like or even understand at times. It's 1% of tax money, right? Like Yeah, 1% of tax money. And that's such an important thing. Like it's our money, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's 1% of the tax money from the levy goes to uh, public art. Public And public art generally, I don't know about how you feel about it, but I also don't connect to what they build in our communities. Sometimes it feels pretty gentrifiery. Yeah, well, that's the thing, right? Because I was on, I was on some of those boards where, or not even boards. Uh, what's it called? Panels, where you get to have a vote and a say, like on where money gets spent. And so many of the applicants are uh, that apply to these things are people that want to build sculptures and not really things that benefit the public, right? So, exactly, yeah. and you know, but these these organizers who also were working in the mm-hmm. county. Uh, saw this money come in and they were like, hey, what if instead of uh, building some sculpture that maybe our communities don't understand or doesn't even reflect who we are, we took $250,000 of that and we seeded a project that um, was doing the work using art and healing engaged spaces to dismantle the school to prison pipeline. Um, I think you were one of the artists that in that first round of artists, contributed no. to thinking no you weren't oh you were just on my interview panel i was on i was on the interview panel that hired aaron counts 
got you. Okay, yeah. you were on Aaron's interview panel. So, yeah. so prior to Aaron, um, who I would consider to be the the founder of this project mm-hmm. being hired, they pulled to they this money got set aside. You then were on the panel to hire Aaron, who's just this amazing uh, black artist and writer here in Seattle who has for a long time been doing work around supporting young people and developing their arts and their voices through Youth Speaks, uh, mm-hmm. who has also worked for a long time supporting our loved ones that are incarcerated through different projects and books. He then led a steering committee that worked with artists, families of young people who'd been incarcerated, young people who'd been incarcerated, one judge, one prosecutor, one public defender to think about what would it look like to um, to design this project. And over the, the course of, of the planning and the work, uh, they arrived at Creative Justice, which looked very different then. And they hired their first round of uh, mentor artists to help support it. We would have 12 to 15 young people that for 12 weeks we made art with uh, who had active cases in the juvenile punishment system. And the goal would be that when they finished their time with us, that their cases would be dropped. Uh, what we amazing. quickly found was, um, it is amazing. And <laughs> we quickly found that the courts were not so quick to drop the cases. And young people really loved the program. So they wanted more time. Uh, it wasn't, for them, it became about much more than just their the the criminal punishment system it was building community it was investing in their creativity it was um having a a place to speak truth to power it was receiving stipends and economic assistance it was having mentor artists who are artists every day showing them that there is a way to be an arts and culture worker and do more than struggle to survive like you can actually you can you can thrive off your work so uh we quickly realized that we had to create pathways where young people could stay engaged with the program and we needed to be continued the organizing with no new youth jail to keep pushing the court systems um and in particular criminal punishment system to stop prosecuting kids because at the end of the day you know a lot of our young people are um economically and politically dispossessed they're living in communities that I wouldn't even view as under-resourced. They were either never resourced in or what resources we had have been stolen and stripped away. Um, And then as Black, Brown, Indigenous young people, queer and trans young people, low-income young people, constantly being targeted by systems. And so the conditions around them, uh, it was much, it's been always, it's become and always been much more than just dismantling the school to prison pipeline. It is changing the conditions that our communities are living in and not doing that on behalf of young people, but doing that in partnership with young people. So um, over the last 10 years, we have been able to grow from being just our base arts program into we have a youth consortium where young people are doing organizing work with currently incarcerated people at the local, county, and state level. They are uh, they have a zine project where they're regularly partnering with incarcerated loved ones to tell the stories of what is happening in prisons and jails mm-hmm. uh, and also like the families that are on the outs. They are working on legislation. We have a podcast where young people are speaking to other young people about things that matter to them. Uh, we have uh, arts-based healing circles uh, that are run and facilitated by other youth and young people. What was the name of the podcast again? The podcast is called Recess. Okay. Um, nice. And the idea is that young people are generating content about things that matter to them for mm-hmm. other young people. Because who better to speak to young people than young people? Absolutely. Um, and who better to decide what is the content going to young people than young people? So right. the podcast, we have arts-based healing circles ran by young folks. Um, we have a garden that they've built in our parking lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we have a weekly kitchen where chefs come in and make fresh meals that young people and their families can access. Uh, we've really grown into a much more uh, holistic and robust space because of the leadership and the voices of young people. And then this Monday, we're going to open a cafe that yes. is uh, going to make the venue that we're in. We're in a building called Washington Hall that has a number of 
black and brown led organizations in it. One in particular is called Black Power Unlimited. Um, and we are partnering to make our venue on the first floor as accessible and beautiful as possible. So the cafe is the first step in sustaining uh, this venue in the Central District for Black and Brown arts and cultural workers. Yeah, so amazing. Um, so since since its inception, right, since, you know, I've seen Creative Justice grow from having basically one employee to 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 then two like how many how many people work at creative justice now and how many youth uh does the organization like are a part of the organization and does the organization serve yeah that's a uh so we went from when Aaron and I were first so there was yeah. Aaron not mm-hmm. full time uh working on a contract and then there was mm-hmm. Aaron and I neither of us full time working on contracts to um, in 2024, we have over 30 staff, Amazing. um, with about 18 of those being full-time and then the rest being part-time often because they are working artists. And so they, they have other projects they're doing other work that they're doing. We have four full-time fellows who were participants in the program where the goal is to very intentionally develop their skills to take my job. Like, yeah, I, when we celebrate our 20 year anniversary, my hope is that it is a former participant in creative justice who is the executive director. It is a former participant from creative justice who is the education director. You know, all the roles that currently are held by quote unquote adults from community, that it's former participants that are in those roles um, running the organization. But we also know that to get young people to that place, we have to be intentional and investing in their knowledge and their capacity building and their relationship building um, and caring for them on multiple levels so that they mm-hmm. can step into those roles feeling really grounded and rooted and skilled up to mm-hmm. to do this work. Because the other side of this is this organization is often attacked by the state and white supremacy. And what I'm not going to do is throw young people into the belly of the beast without the right skills. So we're trying to meet the vision of this org truly being led by young people from the org with a commitment to the capacity building that it takes. And so that's why we have this full-time fellowship. We have a opportunities and fellowship coordinator or director, Moni Tep, who is building out our, not just what is the pathway to leadership in this org, but there are so many other orgs in our region that young people could be skilled up to be taken over. Mm-hmm. So um, being really intentional about that, we have four cafe fellows. We have a youth leadership board that has a representative from each program in the organization, and they are integral to how we make decisions. And then we have a really powerful community advisory board that has local artists and community members on it. Because uh, we really want to be deeply rooted and connected while being youth driven. Um, and hopefully at one point in time, these young people just take over. Yeah, that's it right there. That to me, that's like the mark of good organizing is when you work yourself out of a job, right? Like, yeah, and can pass it on. It's so beautiful. It's so inspiring to see. Um, yeah, I'm really excited about the cafe opening up. That was like the main reason I wanted to have you on this week because uh, I know it's opening up on Monday. And uh, if it's all right, I wanted to go a little bit back in time to even how we met, you know, because I met you as a poet and an MC before I even knew your name, you were a regular at the Fair Gallery Cafe. And uh, and I used to wonder why you didn't come to Hitmo more often. I was like, who, who, who are they? <laughs> so we had these alternating nights, like Cornerstone was, was I think every first, was it Friday or Saturday of the month? And we had Ladies First at Hitmo the same night. So, you know, it was like the same community. Um, but yeah, can you talk a bit about your kind of your X-Men origin story is like an artist in Seattle and how and how your work as an artist, as a poet and all that has been a part of your organizing and everything you've done since, you know? Yes. It's also been a part of my radicalizing. Um, You know, so I grew up in a pretty conservative, Christian, non-political space, uh, and yet being a person very concerned with justice somehow very naturally mm-hmm. um and moving from indiana to seattle i was at this uh white liberal arts christian school 
that is uh, has recently been sued by their student body for being transphobic. So mm. shout out to the students for holding them accountable because that is not a new thing. Um, mm-hmm. But it was being in that space <laughs> as a black, not out queer person, um, mm. as someone struggling with gender identity in terms of what I was told who I was supposed to be. You know, at, at 37, I now understand I'm non-binary um, mm-hmm. and that the the colonial society we're in has not been set up that way, or at least will not, doesn't want to honor my existence. Uh, mm-hmm. But at that age, I already kind of knew who I was. I just didn't have the language to articulate it. Um, but I've also always been an artist. It's always been a part of how I have stayed alive, whether that was singing in church, playing viola at church. Uh, by my senior year of high school, I was in symphony, three choirs, doing various stage things. So performing in the arts has always been a space that I've loved. And in particular, mm-hmm. I love rehearsal. I don't know if other people love rehearsal, but I love mm-hmm. rehearsal because it's a space to experiment. You get to test your limits. Like on the stage and the performance, you do what you know you could do well because you want to deliver a good performance. But in rehearsal, you're going to test the limits of your voice. Like how far can I push it? Um, yeah. And so I've always loved rehearsal. And so when I got to Seattle, I started organizing in the South End of Seattle. Um, and I met young people like Rel B. Free, a young dope MC here in the region who wasn't an MC yet, didn't even know he was a poet yet. And we started watching um, poetry videos together with the okay. other young people in the space. And we were like, what if we started throwing our own open mics? Uh-huh. And the youth were like, yeah, that'd be really dope. So we threw this first event at this church okay. called The Jump Off. <laughs> and <laughs> The Jump Off was literally just young people coming through and performing. And um, they loved it. They, mm. they lo- not a lot of people came, but they came and they supported each other. And mm. so they were like, well, can we keep doing this? And there was this new coffee shop that had opened not far from us in Columbia City um, called Empire. And it was named in honor of the fact that um, MLK used to be Empire Way. Right. And so we were like, what if we hosted an event called Empire Nights? And it was both an opportunity to educate the community about how the neighborhood has changed because the light rail was being built. Gentrification was just like on a thousand percent in the South End. And young people wanted to talk about it. For the people that don't know or don't remember, when that light rail was being built down the center of Martin Luther King Way, first of all, it took like a decade. And they were digging up the street for all that time. And it made all of Martin Luther King way looked like a literal war zone. Like I had friends who had to like literally climb over dirt into a ditch over another pound of dirt to get to their front door, like on the regular basis. And yeah, it was, it was surreal. And it's funny because, you know, the light rail is being built, still being built, like, you know, cause it, it, it exists from what, like Northgate to the airport or past the airport now, past the airport. But, it's, but it's still being built in all these different directions. And it's funny to see it not really impact the lives of people anywhere else in the city, except for those who lived on Martin Luther King way in that time period. So just one of the only context. places, it's, it's one on of the, the only street. places. Yes. And it's the only level, place, right? It's the only place where it's on the street. Everywhere else, it's above ground or underground. Since it's on the street, we have more, like, you know, more people getting hit by the trains. You know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a mess. The way, the way they did that was, was a crime against the South End for real. Also for people, for context, because I realize that I have listeners that aren't in Seattle, right? Like the South End of Seattle is very important to me. If you listen to the episode with uh, Kings, like two episodes ago, we talked a lot about what makes the South End special. But, you know, Seattle is, I think, I think the last time I saw a census report is the fifth whitest major city in the United States. But the 98118, I believe it is, which includes Columbia City, at least at that point was the most ethnically diverse zip code. So we're a sanctuary city, we have a lot of refugee Uh, communities from all over the world, historically Mm -hmm. Black community, historically Native community, of course, it's all Native land. And in the South End, there was always Native people in that neighborhood. 
but we're all just right in one neighborhood, like like next door yeah. to each other, you know, and it makes a really, really unique um, community, you know, that that I grew up in that that is the Seattle that you first started organizing in. So just wanted to add that little bit of context. No, I love that. And I think it's important because it's a part it's what was happening at that time is part of why we started the open mm -hmm. mics in the first place was right. young people wanted a space to talk about what was happening in a creative way, but to be political, right? And art yeah. is a art and culture is such a powerful organizing tool. Um, and the other thing about the light rail being built the way that it was, it stole a lot of people's livelihoods. Yeah, So many people lost their businesses. So it was a pretty devastating time as the city was kind of holding it as like, look at this development mm -hmm. and this new transportation system. For many families in the South End, it was yeah. an experience of, of devastation and loss. And I didn't even mention that we're talking about Seattle doesn't have a lot of low income housing, but two of the low income housing projects in our city are on that street. Talking about yep. Rainier Vista and Holly Park and people were displaced because of this project, you know? So, yeah. So we, we, we started Empire Nights. Um, we're watching these videos and we talk about adding more poetry and things into it, more performance, encouraging more of them to, in addition to organizing, also perform. And uh, the youth were like, I had this saying where I would always tell them, I'm not gonna ask you to do something that I have not already done or I will not also do. Mm -hmm. And that for me is like, you know, like a lot of these young folks were also youth that we ran summer program with or we did other things with. So I'd be like, hey, y'all gotta take out the trash. I got them off the floors. I can't ask you to do something I'm not doing. So that's the context I would use it in often. Sometimes yeah. I would use it in classroom spaces that if I was giving young people an assignment that maybe felt harder, I'd always be like, hey, like, here's an example of how I did it. You know, that because in my mind, that's how you facilitate. You want people to know you've been there. You get that, you know, you experience it. So they turned around. They used that on me. They was like, thought you said that if you wasn't asked <laughs> us to do something, you would have done it or do it. And you don't be spitting poetry. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> Yo, so working. Are you telling me right now that working with young people is what made you a poet? Yes. In terms of like performance poetry, yes. That's amazing. I never actually knew that. Yeah. I mean, young people are part of the reason I do a lot of things. I wouldn't even have the job I have if it wasn't for young people. Right. I would not have gone to law school. I mean, there's a long list of things and that I would not have done without young people. And then how old were you actually when you were, you know, doing all this with the Empire Knights and with the young Jarrell and everything? Like, how old were you? A young person, probably 24, 25. Okay. Okay. Maybe twenty three. It's in the that twenty three to twenty five range. Your early, your early twenties, yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So we, you know, they're like, go do some poems. So uh, there's a poetry slam that was happening, and uh, I went. I read the the rules, and I was like, okay, I can memorize these poems and do them within three minutes, and have a two minute poem and a one minute poem. Cool, cool, cool. I got it. So mm -hmm. I I go and I do it, and I win. Yeah. My first night, I win at the Seattle <laughs> Poetry Slam. So then that puts me in the finals for a competition. I win the finals and I get to go on this trip and compete. And I don't win the bigger national competition. But at that point, I'm like, wow, I'm actually, I'm kind of good at this. So mm -hmm. at that time, the city had a lot of open mics going in addition to the one that, that we were running. Like It just felt like there was two, three open mics a week. You could be spitting somewhere almost almost every night if you wanted to to be quite frank and so mm -hmm. um i started i had kind of my rotation and then there were a number of open mics that me and the homies started because we would outgrow spaces or spaces would be missing something and we wanted more and so we we would plan open mics and um you know really my origin story comes out of communities building spaces to tell the stories that don't get told in right. the voice in the way that we want to tell them because too often our stories told through a lens or by someone else that hasn't lived them or doesn't understand them or doesn't value them or is trying to exploit them or capitalize on them. And mm -hmm. we wanted to tell our stories the way we wanted to. And we wanted to tell them with impact. So many of those open mics that we were organizing also became political organizing spaces where we would invite people into the various movements that we were a part of. And those movements would invite us as artists to 
perform at actions or be a part of events. And so it was so symbiotic in that time mm -hmm. period of the way that movement and being an artist flowed for me that it was at times it was almost indistinguishable, right? you know, which one I was doing in that moment. And uh, yeah. creative justice became a part of that, you know, the No New Youth Jail movement, creative justice being art-based, me being an artist, me being a lawyer, all these right. things really, really, um, it, was, it was so uniquely in my journey, a point when all the things that I felt called to synergized in a really powerful way. Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I saw all that, you know, and it's dope. It's dope to hear you talk about that being your experience in in that era, because that was a little bit after me, you know, coming into into performing. Like for me, it was like the late 90s and early 2000s had that same energy, you know, mm -hmm. in the era of like the WTL protests and, you know, Seattle being a center of like building global solidarity like that was that was a whole year-long process in 1999 mm -hmm. that, that that led to that protest and so many of us like who were young artists at that time I was 18 years old um really learned about global solidarity like you know and and, and what that means in a really real way and you know I was in the middle of the protest freestyling with people that were Zapatistas and folks from you know Oakland California and you know and and like you um the music and the community organizing were never separate to me, you know? So it's dope to hear that like 10 years later, that was still, that was still the energy. Do mm. you think it's still the energy now for young artists now, if they look for it or can fall into it? Honestly, no. And yeah. it, it's part of what, uh, it's part of the impetus for wanting to revitalize our space is understanding the power that comes when those things are synergized. I think there's a hunger for it. And I think right. a lot of a lot of young artists want it. Mm -hmm. um, but especially with what hap has happened with COVID uh, yeah. and gentrification and how expensive the city has become, mm -hmm. I, I think that that has been, a, I hate to use the words perfect storm because there's nothing perfect about it other than right. the conditions were right to, to divide and conquer, I think that a lot of those spaces that had that natural energy, Hidmo, mm -hmm. um, Logos, uh, Empire Nights, You Speaks, like all these different spaces uh, are Isang Mahal. I mean, the list is yeah. so long yeah. where there was just naturally energy around being political and being an artist. They don't mm -hmm. exist anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's because of these various elements have all contributed to us either being spread out, overworked, uh, underpaid, mm -hmm. traumatized, mm -hmm. and and the venues that were holding those spaces don't really exist anymore. So we, as an organization, it is so important for us that we do not lose our arts and culture focus. It is also important to us that we consistently remember that we've been birthed out of movement and that right. we are abolitionists. And those are all things that uniquely have to remain situated in what we do. And so the cafe and revitalizing the venue are a part of wanting to regenerate that because there is power in, in having that. And this is a moment in time uh, that we need it more than ever. Absolutely. And, and I think for us, it is organic to grow into that. It's not having to be manufactured. It is mm -hmm. a literal growth and evolution out of how mm -hmm. creative justice was birds, all of the artists and folks who have given energy to it. And so I'm really excited that we have grown to this point. I'm sad that that what happened in 1999 and 2012 um, had its limits. And at the same time, excited that it still plants a seed that we believe can grow. Absolutely. And I think, and I think that, that, recognizing that continuity is like absolutely like so important right like i quote this thing all the time haile garima said that the american empire survives by interrupting black people's continuity right and anytime mm. somebody says anytime somebody says you're the first that's actually a failure and it becomes your responsibility to find the people that did it before you so you can learn from their mistakes and and I build say. 
and build a new, you know, not build a new, realize that you're just building on, you know, um, continue, continue that work. So yeah, absolutely. Like I see the through line through things that happened way before I was, you know, in Seattle and doing music through what you're doing, through what's happening at Creative Justice. Like it's all, it's all very, very connected. Um, you let me know about the Creative Cafe a little bit early on because there is an intention to honor uh, my dear friend Rawa Hapte and the work that she was doing with Hidmo. Can can you talk about that and why that's important for you and for the cafe yes. itself? I mean, it's important to me personally too. Um, yeah. uh, Rawa had a whether she knew it or not really impacted my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I met Rahu at a point in time where she was both working in the city and organizing. And sometimes her role in the city conflicted sometimes with what she was doing in community. But she had such a unique ability to capitalize on the access that the city work gave her to uh, give community more access to things we needed. And so she, she really impacted me in terms of like thinking about how our arts and culture work, our daytime work, um, even sometimes our work in institutions, if it's accountable to communities that have solid politics and analysis, and we're willing to leave it when we realize it has reached its limitations, mm-hmm. that there's a lot of possibility. So um, for me personally, Rahwa's legacy has also shaped the way that I engage and move in the world around this work. Yeah. Uh, even though I didn't, I didn't come to Hidbo regularly and I couldn't make it to a lot of the events, I was constantly inspired by mm. how much energy each event at Hidmo put back into the community. Like mm. I may not have been at it. And this was before social media was like right. as big as it is. I would always hear about <laughs> what was happening or did happen in that space. Um, mm-hmm. And what I realized from that was that having central hubs like that is such an incredible way to move resource and information through our community. And then it's a place to build relationships. Um, so, you know, as HIDMO, and I'm sure you could speak more diligently to this history, HIDMO couldn't stay in the space that it was in. And so as Washington Hall, which is a historic building here in the Central District, which is a historically Black neighborhood, and Washington Hall has been uh, an important space for folks to have meetings, hold shows, do gatherings, a group of organizations came together to make sure that as this historical building was being renovated, because it was it was not accessible, it was not ADA, um, it needed a lot of repair. It also, at that time, was not serving the communities that it should. Um, there was a steering committee that was basically leading that process, and it was community members connected to various communities. Um, Hidmo teamed up with Black Power Unlimited for the first floor of the building with a very committed focus on serving Black community and Black artists and Mm -hmm. making sure that in this neighborhood where we were, honestly, we were relegated to the Central District. We were redlined into the Central District, right? But as Black people always do, we were like, you know what, that's cool. We're going to make something great. And as we always make something great, white supremacy, white Southern colonialism will come in and extract it and push us out. And so the folks that between HIDMO and Black Power Unlimited, they were like, we are going to cultivate a space where that can thrive, like in terms of Black arts and culture, Black arts and culture workers, and a commitment to Indigenous people's arts and an Indigenous arts and culture workers knowing that we Mm -hmm. are an Indigenous land and that Black liberation and indigenous sovereignty are inextricably interconnected, and that is a value that we hold. So in this same building is also an indigenous-led organization, Voices Rising, Black and indigenous-led. Um, and then there is also a hip-hop organization, Chosik Zulu, that's here, all sharing the building, all figuring out how to coexist, and all trying to figure out how do we continue to cultivate this space. But the first floor, I feel like, is such a unique space because the legacy of HIDMO and the ripple effects of what HIDMO was doing, and in my opinion, is still doing, mm. is part of the reason why we've been able to arrive at this cafe. Mm. And it would not do justice to, to the space to fail to honor the legacy and the work 
that happened that even made it possible for this cafe and all the other things that are going to happen to exist. And that is why Rahwa's legacy, the work that she did with you and so many others, has to be honored at our grand opening because maintaining that story and that history helps us realize that it is not big moments that do this work. It is actually consistent connection, consistent collective care, consistent commitment to each other and the mission that our ancestors have given us that makes these kinds of spaces possible. They don't just happen overnight. Um, And so I feel personally deeply grateful to Rahua and you. Um, I think we feel collectively grateful that we get to stand on that work and see we're taller so we see farther and we can continue to envision so much more, you know? Yeah. Can I can I talk a little bit about the Hidmo? I'm gonna share some Please. Of this. I'm gonna share some of this on Monday at the event, you know. But um yeah, yeah. Um so I was there, I was there the first night that Rawa walked into the Hidmo um on 20th and Jackson. It was an Eritrean restaurant um in the central district. It had a previous owner. It it existed as a neighborhood spot for a long time. Um but the night that we walked into the Hidmo, it would have been late 2006, maybe fall 2006. And me and a couple of friends, we were going to go to Misab, which was an Ethiopian restaurant, literally a few blocks from Washington Hall. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, but Rawa was in one of her moves where she was like, I don't want to go to an Ethiopian spot. I'll, and I'm not hungry because Rawa was like that. She was just funny and could be stubborn about the most random things. You know, she was like, but... I'll go meet with you if you go to an Eritrean spot. So we're like, all right, name an Eritrean spot, you know? Um, And she says, I think there's one on 20th and Jackson, meet me up there. So we go to Hidmo, we walk in, sit down. The The old owner actually looked at Rahwa and recognized both of her parents in her face. And then it wasn't that night, but the next time we came through, he saw me and he recognized both of my parents in my face as well, you know? So that that night um you know he let rahwa he let us know that he was selling the business and he wanted it to stay in community and rahwa was going rahwa was working at the cd forum before this right she worked for the central district forum for arts and ideas cool side note to that um when rahwa worked at the cd forum she organized a black science fiction festival called black to the future where she loved it where she befriended Octavia Butler and was like Octavia Butler's like chauffeur for a little bit, you know, would roll up to Octavia's house and take her to stuff because Octavia never drove, you know. Um, wild. That happened before I met Rahwa. I met Rahwa in probably 2005. Um, wild. Yeah. And we were like best friends. When me and Rahwa met, it was like such a fast friendship. It was like, like my friendship with Rahwa was one where I felt like, I didn't have a lot of Ethiopian or Eritrean friends that understood all of me, you know, in mm. terms of like being mixed, being the generation that I am, like to to be born 1981 to an Ethiopian mother in South Seattle is very rare. Like my mom is one, is called one of the old timers in the Ethiopian community because she came to Seattle in the 1970s and they call me one of the first kids as in I was one of the first Ethiopian kids born in the United States, right? Oh my goodness. So it's a real like particular experience for my age, right? So befriending Rahwa and then us married and then her whole family, it was the first time like I had a whole like Habisha family that I felt like understood and accepted all of me, you know? Mm. And it was was a really powerful, like kind of like world-shaking friendship you know, um, I say that to say we went to Masab. We didn't go to Masab. We went to Hidmo and then we went back to Rahul and Merit's house. I didn't have a laptop at the time. I was about to put out a mixtape. I needed to, <laughs> I needed to use some photo, like some Adobe Photoshop and she had it on her computer. So I spent the night at Rawa's house making a, a, a mixtape cover literally for the Westlake 99 mixtape. Right. Stop it. That same night. Rahua, Asamari, and me stayed up the whole night and daydreamed what we could do if they went and bought this restaurant on 20th and Jackson. 
And in that night, it was like, you know, we had friends that were in Pinaisa, Seattle. Um, I was working at a community organization called CARA before that, Communities Against Rape and Abuse. Mm -hmm. um, Youth Speak Seattle was like all of our people. You know, uh, I was literally, literally living with Chasm, who founded 206 Zulu. He was my roommate in this time period, you know? Um, and we were just a part of like all these different community organizations that didn't always come together. And we thought, what a perfect hub, what a perfect way to connect. And also we're thinking about yes. spaces for all, all ages hip hop shows and how there wasn't really any for that, particularly in the central district. And we wanted to do all ages hip hop shows. So all of this was like imagined and envisioned in the, in the first night, you know? And to my surprise, Rahul and Nismerit took the conversation seriously and they went and bought the restaurant, you know, and made me the bartender the first night. I am the worst bartender you would ever have because I do not drink alcohol. So I don't know I was what about goes to say in the drink. <laughs> my bartending career was less than one night. I had to quit quick. <laughs> it's like, I'm over my head. I don't want to do this. You know, I would make you a coffee or a tea or a chai though. Like I had you there, but oof, when it came to alcohol, it's not me. But I will say that Hidmo immediately was a place where it felt like every single community I'm from existed under one roof. Mm. And that never existed before or since for me in Seattle or anywhere else, you know, because it was very central district. It was very hood, you know? Um, it was very East African. Um, a lot of my black feminists and Filipino feminist organizers, that became their spot, you know? And it was all these worlds and communities that, you know, we're a part of that don't necessarily come together, that came together every single day over something as simple as food and music. And yes. it, was an, it, it was never a nonprofit. And because it was not a nonprofit, I feel like it succeeded where a lot of nonprofits fail at bringing people together, you know, because Hidmo was not accountable to founders. It was accountable to the people that came through the doors. And through that, they were flexible enough to meet the needs of whoever came through their door for whatever it was, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. Rawa was, man, she meant so much. So that little vision that we had about it being an all ages hip hop venue, Dakota Camacho is actually the person who organized the first all ages hip hop night there. And Dakota came in asking if he could do it. Dakota was still maybe in middle school or probably high what? school at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Moni was there too, like every day. It's, you know, um, and they were in high school, you know, and there was middle school kids from Washington Middle School that would like come every day, like it was a safe place for them, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Dakota, Dakota organized the first one. And just walked through and said, I have an idea. Can I do this hip hop night? And it was this night called Hip Hop Period. But Dakota didn't know that that's exactly why we wanted to have this spot. And I bring that up because this is an interesting like story about Seattle that historically our music has been under attack by the police in a way that's not talked about, you know? Um, so going back to my childhood, right, in like 1984, they made breakdancing illegal in Seattle, Washington. I don't know if the law is still on the books. I did not know that. Yeah, no, they, they actually made breakdancing illegal because it was that popular. And anything that gets a whole lot of youth of color together is seen as a threat, right? So another thing that they've done ever since is if there's any violence near a venue that does any kind of hip hop music, because that's the music that, you know, young people of color gather around, they blame it on the hip hop music. They blame it on that night. They will target yeah. that club. Um, it's always been a thing. Like when I came into this hip hop scene, like people were organizing against it in the nineties, you know? Um, so I say that to say when Rawa took over the Hidmo, the police paid her a visit. And the police said, you can do any kind of music you want to do here, but don't do any hip hop. They still do that stuff. And she, yeah. And this was, what was this? This was, it would have been 2006. So, you know, she listened to the police. I mean, she, um, but she did it anyways, basically. And sure enough, the police would harass her. And mm. she valued community so much to the, like she sacrificed her business for young people to have a hip hop space because Hidmo for the, just the way it was like, there was a bar that was a separate room 
from the room that was the bigger room where the restaurant and the miniature hut was, which we used as a stage. So you could have a bar, the bar was a separate room, right? Because the police were coming through and harassing on nights that she would do hip hop shows, she ended up just shutting the bar completely down anytime she did an all ages hip hop show. And that was just what she had to do because the police were coming mm -hmm. through just randomly carting everyone or they would come and just like just be an intimidating force. Like they would put their lights on into the through the windows and just mm -hmm. like it just stare at us from their cars like it was it was constant harassing, you know, and Rahwa did it anyways at the expense of her business, you know, so wow. man, so much love to her. And I just I love that y'all are continuing or building on that legacy, you know, um, Hidmo did close after four, four years and some change. I think it was like four years and two months to be specific. And the move was always to move into Washington Hall. Like that was, that was the intention for all the Hidmo energy to go up in there. By that point, you know, our friend Heidi Jackson had taken over a lot of the day-to-day you know, managing the restaurant itself. Rawa, like you said, was working at the city. Ismerit had been working in hospitals. So, you know, people were at just different transitions in their lives. And um, also Hidmo made, the, made that shift when everyone moved into Washington Hall into being a nonprofit organization and that bumpy road of learning how to operate as a nonprofit when that it never was before, right? Yeah. Uh, um, so... Yeah, it's been, I think it's been a really bumpy ride, but it's just beautiful to see that that legacy continued. And um, just one, one more thing I want to say about it is all of the anchor tennis that you mentioned, Voices Rising, uh, 206 Zulu, they didn't have a space before Washington Hall. So they all used to be in Hidmo. Like it was all like, we were just all under one roof before, you know, so to me is something beautiful and poetic about those organizations actually being under one roof now, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and to yeah. tie in my very first session as a mentor artist was creative justice, our community action project, our final event that our young people did was in the building Hidmo was in. It wasn't oh, Hidmo anymore at the time. But that's where, yeah. That's where we did our closing um, session. And so I feel like that energy yeah has continued to just keep moving. And I feel very much so like Rahwa and and that 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 work, that energy is present in this new evolution of things. Yeah. Um so I'm I'm grateful to hear that story and I can't wait to hear it again on Monday. <laughs> yeah. I'll, try, I'll add some spice to it that day, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That that really warmed my heart. Yeah, yeah. And shout out to Henry Luke. I know I know there's some art gonna be up in there. Um yeah, I'm so excited to see the space. And thank you. Thank you for all the work that you do, you've continued to do. And yeah, I'm just so deeply appreciative of your friendship, of your art work, your working community, all of it, you know. Um, what what's on what's what's on the horizon for you? I know I know it's you know, continuing with, with creative justice, but is that like all your energy right now? Are there some creative things you're working on? Like, you know, I, I see the eyebrow nudges, the nudge, nudge. <laughs> Not just um, curious. <laughs> you know, this, uh, this artist named Gabriel Teodros, who uh, is starting to make beats and things has uh, uh, graciously sent, sent me some tracks. Nice. Um, you know, I think what's been really uh, challenging is balancing the arts administrator, arts organizer with the artist and right. wanting to create i think also running for office in 2017 and 2021 which is a whole nother part of my journey yeah i don't even know if it was a part of my journey i chose as much mm -hmm. as it was like very it was also very driven by community um those things have uh they're beautiful things in terms of i think the things that have come out of them but they also have not allowed me the space to be a creative and to do that thing that I love to yeah. rehearse, to yeah. make new things, to perform, you know, just this, the, on January 1st, performing with you at um, the Pro Sign yeah. event in Chicago. Uh, it really reminded me how much I love pulling together my political work and my organizing work 
with my creative work and how much less draining mm. organizing is when I'm also being an artist. And mm. so mm. I'm hoping to put out an EP by the end of the year. I'm hoping to write poems and uh, lean into creativity. I honestly, you know, real talk, I need that to stay alive. Yeah. Um, because the political work and the nonprofit work without the creativity creativity is my foundation it's just so draining because nonstop you're interacting with these white supremacist capitalist systems that were never meant for us they're not intended for us they're not meant for the planet um they're constantly extracting and exploiting and i feel like we're we spend so much energy um defending against them and the thing i love most about being a creative is the ability to speak truth to power and to imagine the world that we want to live in and articulate that through our craft. That's right. That fills me with, like, it helps me get up in the morning. It allows me to sleep at night. It mm -hmm. gives me peace in moments that are chaotic and, and don't have peace. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm hoping that over this next year, I can lean back into that call of those young people of don't ask me to do something you ain't doing. Uh, and as we're asking our youth to create and heal through creativity, I need to create and heal through that creativity. The last uh, seven years, 2017 yeah. to now, have probably been some of the most formative and simultaneously traumatizing that I've been through in my whole life. And right. so leaning into my creativity and my artistic practice um, is scary <laughs> and mm. exciting mm. and um i'm looking forward to just making stuff yeah let's go let's make music you know um i wasn't even gonna touch the touch the political side but since you mentioned it like you know that that run that you have for seattle mayor like it made history you know like i have that that image of you that that artist did on the cover of the Seattle Weekly, like wearing the kofia, like, you know, as the weekly endorsed you for mayor of Seattle, like burned into my brain, you know what I mean? Like, it's just so, so historic, but being close friends with you through that whole time period, like I saw the toll that it was having on you. And also like bringing it back to Rahua, seeing the toll that working in the mayor's office had on her, you know, back in the day, like that was something that I don't know if she ever healed from you know, before yeah. she passed away, you know, um, it is such a, it's such a particular kind of draining when you're trying to navigate through this system you don't believe in because communities put all this responsibility and expectation on your shoulder. And as politicians, I mean, and you never wanted to be a politician, you know what I mean? But to have, to have that kind of expectation thrust upon you in a way that I don't know if people ever like stopped expecting things of you that aren't human. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, yeah, it's a lot, it's a lot of weight to carry. And it's a weight that I don't think is fair that people put on your shoulders regularly. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm very happy to hear you talking about healing work. I know it's something that, that you've needed for a really long time. And I don't know, I just, just want to encourage you to keep healing and, and keep taking that space and know that it's not selfish to to take that time to heal, you know, because your spirit needs it and we need you, you know, alive, mm. and full, intact, you know, in this world, you know. I say, yeah, and I think, you know, Rafa's story informs that, I think, for a lot of us. Right. Uh, making the time and the space to heal. Um, it, she was such a fighter in so many ways. And at the same time, um, I do see the toll that community expectation put on her and I see it on other people and I see it in myself. Um, and I don't necessarily resent those expectations. Right. And at the same time, um, this is why I think telling whole stories is so important. Yes. Is our liberation never can be achieved by any single moment or single person or figurehead. Our liberation will literally only be achieved through our collective care, our collective organizing, um, our collective fight, our collective struggle, and our collective mm -hmm. commitment to getting to that world that we know we can live in. And so I think part of my healing journey, part of being a creative, 
is working towards continuing to paint that picture of the collective doing the work. Yeah. And uh, what does it look like for part of that work collectively to be healing, to be creating? It can't always just be fight. Um, and right. I think we've really been trained by the version of the story we've been told uh, to one, believe that it's always just fight, to forget the importance that as much as we need to dismantle things, we have to build things. And there's so much life in building things. And That's we've right. also been told it's just the select talented few. And that is the worst lie that mm -hmm. we could ever give into. So mm -hmm. as we like move into cultivating this space, I do hope that it is cultivating those collective approaches to what we do, which is why this is a partnership between us and Black Power Unlimited. It's not us taking over the space. It is a partnership of these two organizations mm -hmm. because both orgs bring so much uh, in, into the ability to make this sustained. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I do think my 2024 is about healing and creativity. And about making sense of a lot of things <laughs> before yeah. this moment. Um, yeah. But that is what performance poetry has always been for me, is mm -hmm. an opportunity to make sense of things, to make beauty out of ash, to take really terrible moments and turn them into to something really beautiful. And um, I lost track of that for a, a long time. For a grip of time, but yeah. um, you know, with homies like you, ha having constantly being called back into it. So, if there's anything that I hope folks get out of this podcast and this conversation, it mm. is the value of our collective stories, our collective legacy, our creativity, and its power to heal, but also its power to manifest. Um, because what good is it to be an abolitionist if we're not also dreaming of what is it going to be like when we get beyond prisons and police and punitive systems and oppression. Um, and that is why creative justice is so powerful to me is young people collectively imagining and creating the world they want to live in. And instead of um, the labels and the oppression that often is put on them in all these systems being the final word, they're actually getting to take those layers off and they are the final say, they are the painter, they are the dancer, they are the musician, they are the poet, and that is power. Yeah. And I'm so excited to be a part of that and to have gotten to share about it on your podcast. Let's go. Yo, what's the what's the best way for people to support all the work that you and Creative Justice have coming up? Yes, if you're local or in the region, Seattle King County, Pacific Northwest, I hope that you'll slide through the cafe if you want to host a show here mm. um we are uh revamping the the first floor venue so that it is cost-wise more accessible hosting your shows here um visiting the cafe having meetings or conferences here are great ways to continue on that energy of this being a community hub um if you are an arts or culture worker that has things that you want to have in this space we have a goal of hosting markets or um, seeing folks being able to be collectively strong in our economics. How do we move our resources amongst each other? Let's connect and talk about what we can bring here that does that uh, as we're in the midst of all these boycotts and please keep up the boycotts because they yes. do work when we are consistent and committed. Um, we need to be spotlighting, amplifying, uh, going to our local businesses. And so why not put our money back into these spaces and never put them back in these corporations that are always going to be terrible and shitty. So um, mm -hmm. if you have ideas or things that you think should be in a space like Washington Hall, come here, support them, build with us, organize with us. And then, uh, you know, Creative Justice NW on Instagram. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook. We have a website, www.creativejusticenw.org. Um, I'm not going to lie, we'll always take donations. So if you got some money in your pocket and you want to support, we appreciate that. Uh, a, a lot of what we raise goes back into young people's pockets, whether that's food stipends, jobs, rental support, food support, healthcare support. So um, 
I, I feel uh, blessed to be able to authentically say you can actually trust that we're putting that money back into our team and the young people um, in the space. Um, and the beauty of our team is all black and brown folks, all people impacted by the criminal punishment system or other systems like the, the immigration system and all the injustice that's also in that system. Um, I've, we are authentically a space that is working to make sure that we are stewarding what comes in and what goes out. So come through. Let's make art. That's what it is. Nikita, thank you so much. It's been a joy and a pleasure having you here on the Worldwide Underground. And I uh, can't wait to see you on Monday. Yeah. I want to thank my friend Nikita Oliver once again for joining us on the podcast. We hope to see you. You're in the Seattle area this Monday, January 15th over at Washington Hall for the grand opening of the Creative Cafe. If you're not in Seattle or if you're just listening to this after January 15th, 2023, we know good conversations can be timeless. You can always tap into creativejusticenw.org. Again, that's creativejusticenw.org find out about everything that creative justice has going on gabrielteodros.substack.com is where you sign up for the mailing list i'll be putting out exclusive mixes future podcast episodes and all that it's all up there on the substack and thank you all once again for tuning in for supporting this podcast it's a completely experimental endeavor i'm having fun with it i hope you are too and we'll see you in the next week or so. Peace. Oh yeah. And if you want to hear the actual version of this song to this instrumental that you're hearing in the background, it is Nikita and myself going back and forth on the new album from the ashes of our homes. I gotta do a better job of promoting my music. <laughs> it's a good album and I made the beat myself. Go listen to it if you haven't yet. If you have, hey, appreciate you.